Thank you so much. So are you ladies excited to study the book of Romans this season? Yeah? Awesome. I glanced uh, a little bit at your um, binders there. Elizabeth has one at home. That's a lot of stuff. You guys have a lot to go through. Hopefully you'll be teaching me some things by the end of this. So, um, this morning, we're going to do a little intro into Romans. Uh, I'm going to do an intro slash the first verse of Romans, and that's it. I say that's it, but it'll probably be about 30 to 35 minutes, uh, just to kind of lay the foundation. Um, and then Rhonda, as well as some other ladies, will be leading you in the teachings this season, and you'll be able to dive even deeper. Uh, but before we start talking, let's please pray. Jesus, we come before you and we thank you for um, your word, God, this book, this book that has impacted so many lives, God, not just the Bible in its entirety, but this epistle to the Romans, Lord. Um, God, I pray that you would use this book to minister to our hearts, to meet us where we're at, Lord, that you would refresh us, revive us in you, that we would um, just be so excited, God, to, to dive deep uh, into your word, Lord, and you would reveal deep truths that maybe we've never even considered before now and the rest of this season of women's ministry. In your name, amen. Okay, Romans. Um, often referred to as the gospel of grace. Grace is uh, an extremely important word, a, a reoccurring word that happens over and over again in the book to the Romans. Um, it's almost like <laughs> the Romans, is, the book of Romans is so focused on grace, you almost need to kind of read the book of James as well to get like both kind of sides uh, to the gospel in its entirety. But this book is absolutely amazing. Uh, so well written, obviously, because of who it was written by, not just Paul, but the Holy Spirit truly written and inspired by God. Um, it's believed to be written around 53 to 58 AD, somewhere in that time range. Okay, This book really sums up the heart and the message of not just the gospel, but the Bible in its entirety. So we're going to find throughout this season that there's so much deep uh, understanding to be gained here through this book of Romans. In this book, it has um, impacted so many lives throughout history. You look at John Wesley and um, you look at Martin Luther specifically. This book really started the Reformed movement. See, Martin Luther, um, many will say, Martin Luther started the Reformed movement, but it was re through reading this book that the Reformed movement started. And it's that verse in uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 17. It says, the just shall live by faith. This was something different than Martin Luther, the monk, had ever uh, thought about before. He was so uh, focused on works, and he was so convicted, and he fell into self-condemnation, and he would literally beat himself and whip himself. Has anybody seen uh, a movie about Martin Luther? 
Yeah, some of you, it's, it's pretty crazy. He's literally being like tormented. Uh, it almost seems demonically until he encounters this book and specifically this one verse. And it really changed his whole perspective about the gospel and his relationship with the Lord in general. And when you really think about this, I, I want us to think about this. So Martin Luther started the reform movement, but it was from this book. Now, the reform movement, what was it? Well, it was essentially a separation from the Catholic Church. Um, that's where we get the word Protestant from. They were literally protesting against the Catholic Church because the Catholic Church was corrupt and they were... Um, misusing their authority and there were so many things going on in the catholic church in that time and they really got away from uh some of the 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 root doctrines of the word of god and it was you know hey the the priest will read the word or the religious leaders will read the word the bishops or whoever and they'll communicate the meaning it's not up to the people to interpret so they took advantage of their position many of them not that there wasn't any good Catholic leaders in that time period, but many were corrupt. So Martin Luther protested against the Catholic church because he received truth from the Lord through the epistle of Romans. And that's really one of the big reasons why uh, our ancestors were able to come to the United States for religious freedom. So if you really look at this and think about this, Romans is a pivotal book in our history, in American history. It's so amazing how this uh, epistle, this um, 16 chapter epistle has impacted so many people in so many nations. This book was really the first book for me personally that I was able to dive deep into and gain understanding. It was about uh, a month after I got saved, you know, I accepted the Lord and someone suggested, I was like, ah, I was understanding some stuff, but it's like, man, I, 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 what should I read next? And someone was like, hey, you might want to try reading the book of Romans. And I started reading it in my, like every day I was like, mind blown, like, oh my gosh, this makes so much sense. I get it. And it was actually the first time that I was asked to teach was in the book of Romans. They just asked me to do a devotion. I was literally, I'd been saved for like a month and a week and I just was reading the book. And I was like, are you serious? You want me to teach? Are you kidding me? I don't want to do this. I'm terrified. Um, so I write down my sermon. I actually was in Romans chapter 12 and 13 because um, those uh, scriptures just impacted me so deeply. And I remember I wrote down my whole little sermon. It was about 15 minutes or so. <laughs> and they're all watching me. It was just a little group of guys, like 10, 15 guys. And I start reading it. And my uh, leader's like, hey, don't just read it. Just talk to us. I'm like, no. I'm just, I'm just going to read this thing because I was so terrified and so nervous. Um, but I got through it and I don't think I, uh, communicated too much heresy, hopefully. But it was literally the first time that I ever taught was in this book. Um, so yeah, this book is, uh, personally, um, had a huge influence on my life. Okay, so this book was written by 
Paul, obviously the epistle of Paul, the apostle to the Romans. And who was Paul? I think it's important. Uh, I know pretty much probably everybody knows who Paul was, but just um, we're going to go back through a, a couple references to really understand and grasp who is writing this book. This is a man that was formerly a, 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 a Pharisee, a blasphemer, and a persecutor of Christians. In fact, he partook in and consented to the very first martyr's death that we see in the Bible. It's in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen was martyred. Look what we see here. When Stephen was martyred in Acts chapter 7 at the very end after he was stoned to death, look who is standing right there. Verse 58 of, uh, of chapter 7, it says, And they cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. This was an act of submission and obedience to Saul of Tarsus. Why? Look at verse uh, 1 of chapter 8. Now, Saul was consenting to his death meaning that he was the one, he was one of the people that not only allowed it to happen, but issued the death sentence of Stephen, which will lead many uh, Bible scholars to believe that Paul uh, was a part of the Sanhedrin, okay, that uh, elite group of religious leaders of the day. He consented to Stephen's death, the first martyr. This man, a persecutor of Christians, uh, later tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he confesses this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, he says, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me, because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy... Because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Paul's telling young Timothy, this young pastor, this is who I was. I was a Pharisee. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor of Christians. I literally had Christians sentenced to death. But because of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, because of his mercy, I'm not the man that I was. And when did this mercy, this moment of mercy take place? We know it was back in Acts chapter 9, right? In Acts chapter 9, if you'll flip with me real quick, Paul, on his way to go persecute some more Christians, you guys know the story, I just want to read it again. You guys went through Acts last time, right? Acts chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
As he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, arise, go into the city and you will be told what you must do. So this is Paul. This is so crucial um, in understanding this. um, And we'll get into it a little bit later in, in a moment when we get to Romans chapter one, verse one, but that Jesus actually encountered Paul, came to Paul, right? He saw, Paul saw Jesus in his resurrected state and he met Paul right where he was at and he bestowed mercy and grace on Paul. And immediately we see this repentance in Paul, right off the bat, immediately in his response. And he responds with the two greatest questions that any of us could ever ask in our lives, not just in the moment that we accept Christ, but on a daily basis. Look at the questions that he asks. He says, who are you, Lord? And what do you want me to do? Look at that. Verse five. And he said, who are you, Lord? Verse six, Lord, what do you want me to do? Those are the questions we need to ask every single day. Lord, who are you? Really, who are you? I I know I know you, but I also know I can know you deeper. I can know you more intimately. I can understand you on a deeper level. And through that understanding of who you are, what do you want me to do? What would you have for me? What's your will for me? And we're going to see that the very moment that Paul meets Jesus, he expresses these two questions, but these two questions shape the heart of the rest of Paul's ministry. He's constantly pursuing who the Lord is on a deeper level and what God wants him to do. And that's really how this whole epistle of the book of Romans is framed. He's diving deep into understanding the Lord and these different doctrines. And he's asking the question, Lord, what do you want me to do? Well, the Lord wanted Paul to write this letter amongst other things. And as he's Walking in obedience to what God has called him to do, he's also giving us that deeper understanding that he's sought since the moment that he met the Lord. Who are you, Lord? So we see here um, in the book of Romans, uh, it seems that Paul wrote this letter from Corinth, which is interesting. And I want to just... Uh, uh, before you just assume, oh, well, Tanner said that he wrote it from Corinth. Let's look at the word and why we believe through studying that many scholars suggest that Paul wrote this letter from Corinth. If you look at Acts chapter 20, we're going to dive into a, uh, a few scriptures. Acts chapter 20, we see that Paul was in Greece for three months in one of his missionary journeys. In Acts chapter 20, verse 2, it says, Now we had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words. He came to Greece and stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him, as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return from Macedonia. Okay, so this is believed to be the time period that Paul wrote this epistle to the Romans. Okay, look at Romans chapter 16, verse 1. Romans chapter 16, verse 1.
Corinth was a city in Greece. Uh, but look here in verse one of chapter 16, I continue to Phoebe, our sister, who was a servant of this church in Centria. Now, Centria was a seaport city that served uh, many of the maritime needs of the larger city of Corinth. Uh, Centria was eight miles away from Corinth. So they had a lot of connections together. Okay. So this is just one of the pieces of evidence. All right. So this Phoebe, he's saying she's there and he's commending Phoebe to the church in Rome. Centria, it's right by Corinth. Okay. But look, we have further, more solid evidence. If you look at verse 23 of um, Romans chapter 16, it says, Gaius, my host and the host of the whole church greets you. Erastus, the treasurer of the city greets you and Cortus, a brother. Okay. So he's saying Gaius. Okay. Gaius, this man with his whole church is greeting you. So we know that Paul is writing this letter to the Romans from a church. Well, what church is this? Which church was Phoebe and Gaius a part of? Okay, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Should be on the same page for you, maybe. Verse 14. This is to the church in Corinth. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Okay, Paul's speaking to the church in Corinth and he's saying, hey, I baptize only Crispus and Gaius. And we see he's with Gaius and this other woman who's from the church right next door. And he's writing the letter. He's saying from the whole church, he's talking about from the whole church of Corinth. We're writing you this epistle. I'm with Gaius, who's one of the leaders in the church of Corinth. Now, this is interesting. Paul's writing the letter to the Romans from Corinth. Now, think about what what's going on in Paul's mind. What are the things that he's seen in Corinth? Now, Corinth was a port city, a very wealthy city, um, known for their worshiping of idols and sexual immorality and materialism and all these different things. He's watching this. He's there for three months. He's seeing all these things that are happening in Corinth, this corruption and just so many different things you, you hear him talking about in the epistle to the Corinthians. And you have to think that as Paul is watching Corinth and its corruption, he's thinking about the Romans and wondering how they're identifying with some of these same struggles. Because we're going to see, if you look at history, Rome is struggling with some of these th- same things. They're struggling with idolatry. They're struggling with worshiping other gods. They're worshiping Caesar as a god right? They're struggling with sexual immorality. They're struggling with materialism. They're struggling with many of the same things that we see the United States struggling with today, which is very interesting. That's why this book is so important, not just for the Romans and the church that Paul was writing to, but to us right now, right here, because as we unpack this book and understand it on a deeper level, we're going to recognize, hey, I struggle with some of the same things the Romans did, which is absolutely amazing how the word of God is living and powerful. And even though certain things have been written thousands of years ago, it will meet us right where we're at and pierce our hearts right where we're at. Okay, so Rome. All right, um, hear the expression, all roads lead to Rome, right? This is an idiom, okay? But it's also a historical fact uh, because how the city was set up, you had the you had Rome and uh, the Roman Empire um, and all the roads led 
out of Rome and into Rome. Everything was directed back towards the city of Rome. If you um, took a picture, I should have made you a slide, but if you took a picture of Rome, it's like all the roads are like this, just going out, going out to Rome, which means all the roads are leading into Rome. It goes both ways, right? That's why many Bible scholars will say, yeah, all roads lead to Rome, but all roads lead out of Rome when studying this epistle. Why? Because if Rome was the world power of that era and there were actually physical roads that led outside of Rome, if we can get the gospel inside of Rome, then it's inevitably going to spread throughout the whole world. Okay. And what is the gospel? I wasn't going to talk about this, but, but Rhonda said it. So now I have to talk about the Romans road. There is actually the Romans road. Um, if you want to write these references down, if you don't know them already, uh, it's Romans 323, uh, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And then it goes to Romans 623. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even in our sin, even while we were sinners, Christ died for us, right? And then it's Romans chapter 10, verse 9 to 10. Um, okay, what do we do? We're sinners. Wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He died for us while we are sinners. We're only able to receive that eternal life by Romans chapter 10, verse 9 to 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Okay, what do we do with Romans 3, 23, 6, 23, 5, 8? We Romans 10, 9 to 10, we confess that Jesus is Lord, believe that in our heart. Okay, and then um, some add on Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Uh, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now that, now that I've accepted Christ into my life, how do I continue to grow my faith? Well, it's diving into the word. It's pursuing relationship with him. The more I'm in the word, the more I hear the word, the more my faith will grow and my relationship with him will grow. So it doesn't just leave you off with salvation. We get kind of a, a little uh, verse about discipleship too there in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. But that's Romans road. So if that can get into Rome, that understanding, the understanding of the gospel, it will inevitably, eventually spread throughout the whole world because it's the world power of the day. And we see it actually does eventually, right? After about... Um, up to 312 AD, we see mass persecution happening in the church. Okay, so the gospel's getting to Rome, but what's resulting is mass persecution. But as we see in the book of Acts, and as you studied last season, when persecution comes, the church actually spreads and grows. So God uses the persecution. What the enemy used to divide, God uses to multiply. Okay, so we see the church actually grows through this persecution up to the point of Constantine. Okay, Constantine was uh, the Roman emperor that took power in 306 AD. Uh, he was converted, he accepted the Lord, and then in 312 uh, AD, he decided that everybody needs to be a Christian <laughs> in Rome. 
the world power, everyone, if you're a Roman, you must be a Christian, which wasn't a good thing because he was forcing people to accept Jesus Christ when they really didn't want to accept Jesus Christ or they really didn't believe. So they're claiming that they are a Christian just so they aren't killed or persecuted, which if anyone says that they're just a Christian, but God hasn't done that work in their lives, it's going to cause big problems. And that's what happens. You see all this corruption and compromise in the church from like 312 to 600 AD. So this does happen. We see this, this works. Paul gets the the gospel already got to Rome. Paul's encouraging the people that are there at the church in Rome to continue on in these things and have a deeper understanding of the understanding of these things of the Lord. So as they grow in their faith and understanding, the gospel spreads more and more and more. And here we are today, Christianity, um, the largest religion in the world. So it worked. So many have the question, who started the church in Rome then? Well, some will say that it was one of the people that was at Pentecost um, when the Holy Spirit descended uh, upon the church as they were meeting um, and they had tongues of fire and they spoke in all these different languages and all these people got saved. 3,000 people got saved at Pentecost. Many will suggest that it was one of those people that got saved at Pentecost, but we don't really know. You know who really started the church in Rome? Jesus. We can rest assured that Jesus started this church, okay? We don't know the man or whoever started it or the method even. We can make assumptions and all these different things, but it was Jesus. Jesus said that he was going to build his church, and this is a church that he built. All right, Romans chapter 1, verse 1. We're only going to go through this first, but we're going to dive a little deep. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Paul, he starts it off in introducing himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Many of you know what a bondservant is, but we're going to dive into it anyways, because it's important. It's the first word he uses to describe himself. Okay, Um, Paul is a bondservant. That word bondservant is doulos. It's the Greek word doulos. And what it is, um, is described in Exodus chapter 21. If you guys want to flip there, you girls, you ladies, I just say guys in general. Why do we do that? Why do we just say guys when we're talking about general people, but they're not, not ladies and gentlemen, but you're just ladies. If I call you guys again, please forgive me. Exodus 21, verse 2 to 5. How did guys become a, just like a general name for people and not like, it's a, it's a masculine thing. But wait, no, just you guys. Hey, you guys. I don't know. Maybe I can study that later. <laughs> Exodus chapter 21, verse 2. It says, if you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh year, he shall go out free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. 
If his master has given him a wife and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Now, real quick, I want you to look back at verse two. It says a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years. And on the seventh year, he'd be set free and he won't have to pay anything. What does that mean? Okay. He had an option. He can just serve out his term, which was six years. Okay. Or someone or himself could pay the price so that he could be freed. Okay. Both of those things are important. There's two ways to gain freedom. Either you served your six years or someone else paid the price for you to be free. Important. Okay. So he, look what it says in verse five. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Because sometimes slavery, it isn't slavery in the context that we think now today as this really bad, horrible thing. Sometimes it was the best option for the family. See, sometimes people, they sold themselves into slavery or they sold their children into slavery so they could have a better life because they didn't have, uh, they didn't have farmland that was producing crop or they didn't have a good job that would, um, give them enough money to provide for their family. So they might say, Hey, maybe, maybe my farmland is dead and we're not going to have a good harvest. We're going to sell our family into slavery for these six years so that we can survive and then we'll get back to work doing whatever we were doing. Okay. Cause it was a temporary thing. It wasn't uh, supposed to be a permanent thing. But look what he says here. If a bond servant, if a servant, a slave decides, wait a minute, I served my six years, but I've realized, dude, I'm better off with him than I am on my own, my farm or whatever my occupation was. That's not going to thrive. I'm actually doing a lot better with my master. And he stays with him, important word, because of the love he has for his master. What is that really implying? Okay. See, ultimate love means ultimate trust. It means I'm trusting my master to be more concerned for my well-being than I can be for myself. He knows what I need and he's going to provide for my needs better than I can provide for my own needs. I love him because I trust him. I literally trust him with my life more than I trust myself with my own life. Isn't that the picture of us in our relationship with Jesus, right? It's like, man, wait a minute. I know who I was before Jesus and I know what I did with my life before Jesus. He's a much better master for my life than I am for my own life, right? So I give my will to him. I choose to be enslaved to him because his will for my life is better than my will for my life. And see, in this world, slavery is not an option. It's a reality, okay? Sometimes we think we're free when we're really not free. We could say, man, this going to church thing or this being in a relationship with Jesus thing, I feel like I can't do this and I can't do that and yada, yada, yada. But what you think of freedom is really slavery. No matter what, slavery, it's not an option. It's a reality. I'll show you this in the word. It's Romans chapter six, verse 16. Romans chapter six, verse 16. He says, Paul writes, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death 
or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God, be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Okay? So, the only form of freedom we have is choosing to be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. We're either a slave to sin or we're a slave to Jesus. It's one or the other. There's no in between. There's no freedom in and of ourselves. There's no freedom apart from Jesus. The only freedom we can ever attain is by choosing to be a slave to him. So choosing to be a slave to Jesus, what does that necessarily mean? Okay, now, if you think back to what we just looked at in Exodus chapter 21, we talked about two different ways that we could be freed, right? That, are, that a Hebrew servant or slave could be freed, right? They served out their six-year term, or what? Someone paid the price and freed them from their slavery, and that's what it says concerning our relationship with the Lord in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. See, we had a debt that we, um, that we owed for the sins. The wages of sin is death. So all the sins that we've accumulated for our lifetime made us a slave to sin and there was a debt that needed to be paid. And then Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 19, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. We're not our own. We're not we're not our own. We're not our own. <laughs> <laughs> you were bought at a price therefore glorify god in your body and in your spirit which are god's we were slaves to sin but he purchased us from that bondage we used to be bond servants to sin we used to be bond servants to the prince of the power of the air or the god of this age we literally were bond servants enslaved to satan without even knowing it because we were bound in sin and Jesus said, no, I'm going to come. I'm going to pay the price so that you no longer have to be a, a bondservant to Satan, the God of this world, and the sin that that brings. But now I purchased you, you're mine. Okay? But he doesn't force that on us. We choose it. Hey, do you want to be bound to Satan and sin or do you want to be bound to Jesus? It's one or the other, but we're going to be bound to something. So he paid the price. When we accept the price that he paid in the cross... Now we can experience the freedom that only he has to offer. So this is what it means to be a bondservant of Jesus Christ. It's not like, oh, that word bondservant. Um, I don't want to be a slave to anyone. Us being humans, we're going to be a slave to something. There is no option. We're either a slave to sin and Satan or we're a slave to Jesus. I'd rather be a slave to Jesus. It's a better slavery. It's a, it's a, it's a more loving master. Okay. Look what it says in Romans chapter one. He says, not only a bond servant of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle. What does that mean? Apostle means, um, sent out one specifically in the scriptures. It's sent out by Jesus Christ himself. 
So this is huge, okay, in understanding who Paul is. Uh, many would debate, even in that day, the church in Corinth would debate who Paul was. That's the whole point of the second letter to the Corinthians. Paul is telling them who he is. He's telling them his story. He's telling him what he's done because he's trying to get the message across to them. No, I am a legit apostle. So like, wait a minute, Paul, he didn't walk with the other 12 disciples. He wasn't following Jesus in his ministry. He wasn't really set out by Jesus. He sent all the disciples out in Acts chapter one. Remember? But when did he send Paul out? No, he did send Paul out in Acts chapter nine. Jesus Christ himself came to Paul and sent him out and he gave him a specific mission. Look what happens. Back to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Right off the bat, right as this transformation happens, in this same chapter, in this same context, look at verse 15. But the Lord said to him, speaking to Ananias, who is going to go uh, baptize Paul. Go, for he, speaking of Paul, is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my namesake. See, God chose Paul. He sent him out right there. He's a chosen vessel of mine to proclaim the gospel, essentially, to Gentiles, to kings, and to the children of Israel. He was sent out right off the bat by Jesus personally. We see it in the scripture. So there's no question about Paul's apostleship. He was an apostle because if he's not an apostle, then we have every right to question what he's saying. But he is, he truly was sent out by Jesus. And what's interesting about this is as he preached his words, they weren't really his words, they were God's words. As he preached these messages to all these different churches that he partook in, that he was a part in, they recognized, these churches recognized, these aren't the words of man. These are the words of the living God. And we see that uh, referenced in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 13, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. If you don't get there in time, I'll just read it. He says, for this reason, we also thank God. This is Paul writing without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, okay, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Look what he's saying to the church at uh, Thessalonica. He's saying, when you heard us preach to you, you recognize that these weren't the words of men. These were indeed the words of God. This is so important to Paul's apostleship. The words that he's writing here in this epistle to the Romans, these aren't Paul's words. He is truly inspired by the Holy Spirit. These are God's words. And we should recognize the book of Romans as not Paul being the author, but God being the author of this book. And then he says, lastly, Romans chapter 1, verse 1. He says, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Okay, separated to the gospel of God. This is interesting and kind of fascinating. See, it's not like God decided that Paul would make a good apostle on a whim. 
Okay, it wasn't like, okay, eh, we lost Judas, uh, Matthias, he's not really, he's not really cutting it. All right. What do you think, Jesus, Holy Spirit? Okay, we'll choose Paul. He'll make a good apostle. It wasn't like that at all. He was separated for the gospel from birth. And he knows this and he talks about it in Galatians chapter 1 verse 15. See, Paul becoming an apostle, being separated to the gospel, this was the plan that God had for his life from the very beginning. It's Galatians chapter 1. Verse 15, look what he says here. But when it pleased God who separated me from his, from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. See, this wasn't Paul just being set apart in the book of Acts chapter 9. It wasn't just Jesus met him on the road to Damascus and all of a sudden he was set apart. No, he was set apart from the foundations of the earth. This was always God's plan. And Paul, he recognizes that. Wait a minute. God, this was your plan all along. Now, what are the implications there? God set Paul apart for the gospel. So every single thing in Paul's life from where he was born to what he became, a persecutor of Christians, his ethnicity, even where he grew up, being a Roman citizen, God used every single bit of that. And even before Paul knew God, God knew Paul, and God was using all these different things to prepare him for his apostleship. He set him apart from the very beginning. Paul, it was very interesting. He was a Pharisee, so he knew the Hebrew Bible. He knew the word like the back of his hand, but he was also born of Tarsus. He was a Roman citizen. So he had this unique ability to relate to both Jews and Romans and Gentiles. God used everything in Paul's life because he set him apart before the foundations of the earth. He used all of it. He was a persecutor of Christians. How often does Paul get persecuted? A lot. He's able to identify with any persecuted Christian because not only did he persecute Christians, but he was persecuted as a Christian. So God uses everything. See, God has set us apart for the gospel before the foundations of the earth. It's Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, and this is where we'll close. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. Just as he choose, chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. He chose us. He set us apart for the gospel, just like Paul. And he's going to use every single aspect of our lives, past, present, future, to get the message across to the masses. He's going to use your childhood, whether it was a good childhood or a bad childhood. He's going to use your relationships, good relationships, bad relationships. He's going to use abuse. He's going to use encouragement. He's going to use the worst thing. He's, he's going to use the best things. He's going to use your job. He's going to use your husband. He's going to use your children. He's going to use every single thing that you've experienced in your life to get the message across to the masses. Because just as Paul used to persecute Christians, 
he would later be able to relate to them because he saw their pain and then he walked through it later himself and he's able to write the book of Philippians and all these different sections of scripture where he encourages people in their suffering because he was able to be comforted by the Lord in his suffering so that he could comfort others. And that's just one example, but God uses everything. He set us apart in our mother's womb before we ever acknowledged him, before we even knew he existed. He knew us and he had a plan and a purpose for us. And that purpose, generally speaking, is to get the message of the the gospel, the message of the cross across to the masses. So if he's using all these things, let's purpose to see him using all these things and let's purpose to use all these things too. It's like, man, I'm in a secular job and the environment isn't right. It's like, why do you think God has you there right now? And, and, you know, maybe he calls you out of that, but why does he have you there right now? Maybe there's a specific person that he wants you to use you to get the message across to them. And this is my hope and my heart for this season for you ladies as you dive deep into his word. Those are thick packets. You're going to get so much information. You're going to come away with so much like, oh my gosh, you know, that's a lot of teaching. That's a lot of word. But as you dive deep into his word, I pray that it wouldn't just affect you and impact you deeply here, but that you would go affect and impact others deeply out there. He was set apart for this. This was his plan. This was his purpose all along. This is our plan. This is our purpose. Not that we have to be Paul the apostle or we have to be anyone other than what God has called us to, but God has called us. He has separated us for this very thing, for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this epistle, God. Um, Lord, it's amazing um, the identity that you gave Paul it was so wrapped up in you. It wasn't about him. He's a bondservant of you, God, an apostle of you, sent out and set apart by you. Lord, and I pray that we would identify um, with that, God, that we would choose to, to, to have that mentality, um, that we would recognize that we have the best slave master ever, Lord, that we've been sent out by you in some capacity. We've been set apart since the foundations of the earth for this very thing to get your message across to those that don't know you. In your name, amen.